Welcome back to Crime Capsule. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Today, we're picking back up on our conversation with Chris Sumter, curator of the Edgar Allan Poe Museum in Richmond, Virginia, and author of Haunting Poe, published by the History Press. We were talking about Poe's connection to the early spiritualist movement in the mid-1800s when folks would hold seances and other gatherings to reach out to relatives who had already crossed over to the other side. It's a thread that runs prominently through much of Poe's work, the sense of parting the veil. And Chris is an expert on the topic. If you're just joining us, make sure to tune in to last week's episode for the backstory to this aspect of Poe's life. Thanks as always for listening. Now, back to the show. It was uh, such a widespread pursuit in those years. I mean, some of it was pure quackery, and I think other other aspects of it were at least sincere-hearted, you know, people who were genuinely mourning, people who were genuinely in grief over the death of a loved one, or, or sort of desperate to reach out and to try anything they could to assuage, you know, the pain that they felt. It's hard not to feel a little sympathetic to, you know, some of the folks that were gathering who had no other means of mourning, you know, their, their lost relatives or whatever it might be. I mean, I think we can absolutely look with some derision upon those who profited off of of the enterprise, and you write about that, of course, in your book, um, as a as a major feature of of the spiritualist scene in the 1830s and and 40s. But um, there is this kind of interesting tension. You know, people will believe what they want to believe, and if in that context, you know, believing that they have reached out to the other side provides them some measure of comfort. Who are we to deny them that comfort if they have no other recourse? Oh, yeah. And just about 12 years after Poe died, the U.S. entered into American Civil War, and that saw death on an unimaginable scale. People, say, from New York would send their loved ones down to the South, never see them again. What happened to them? How can we find out? And sometimes they had to call on spiritualists to try to help them through those tough times. And then, gosh, not too long after that, we had World War I. And again, people traveling off to Europe, never to be seen again. And what if there were a way that we could say that last thing we wanted to say to them and maybe make contact? And there were lots of spiritualists who were willing to try to look for those answers. There are also a lot of hoaxers. There In Poe's day, they started out by just making knocking noises. That's all you needed. If you heard this knocking noise, then maybe you could get a spiritualist to help you interpret (laughs) the knocks and help you communicate with Poe's ghost. And the famous Fox sisters who really blew up, they were superstars of the spiritualism world. They heard these knocking noises and they would ask it questions. They're just little girls. So all these adults who were prominent members of the community would come to these young girls and ask them, well, what advice can you give me about this or that? And how do I invest? And can you ask a question of my loved one? And they would just hear these knocking noises and they interpret the knocking noises. And later, one of the Fox sisters admitted, oh, we were just cracking our toes. We tricked everybody. <laughs> we tricked all the adults by cracking our toes. But by then, it was too late. It had already taken off. And then you had mediums who would lift up a table, although it might just be because their foot's underneath the table lifting it up. Or or maybe during the seance, they would have 
a spiritual form who looked an awful lot like the medium's assistant walk into the middle of the room and then disappear. Right. (laughs) And when we talk about a medium, it's really the medium of communication between this world and the other. Back then, they would call them the spiritual telegraph. That's the medium of communicating with somebody on the other side. Now, we would call it the spiritual cell phone. You can use the cell phone to communicate with somebody far away that you can't see. So, the medium is your cell phone. And you would ask her, usually as a woman, usually a young woman, and you'd ask her to help you reach out to these people. And beyond that, there was also spiritualist photographers, William Mumler, who his whole shtick was you would come to his studio and get your photo taken. And then when you got the picture back, you'd see a ghostly form sitting over your shoulder. Sometimes it looked a lot like somebody they'd known during their lifetime. His most famous subject is Sally Todd Lincoln, who he swore up and down he did not know who she was. But when she had her picture taken, there was a bearded man standing behind her that looked a little bit like Abraham Lincoln. Imagine that. (laughs) The levels to which these folks would go to. I think my favorite of all of the ones that you describe in the book, Chris, is the scene in which you have uh, some folks gathered around a, a seance table, and it's the um, it's the knocking, right? And the idea, uh, the question that is raised of the ethereal presence in the room is, you know, how many how many years ago, you know, was this person killed? And the sort of correct answer is supposed to be fifty, um, and then they get a bunch of these knocks, and later after the uh, as people are kind of recounting the the event, the seance, nobody can agree on how many times that that they heard knocks. Was it twenty four? Was it forty eight? Was it fifty one? Was it and this sort of finally you get this sort of consensus arrived at later. But as I was reading that passage, I was just thinking. Was nobody sitting there with a notepad and a pen like they do in the House of Representatives, you know, or any other place where you count things one at a time? And it's like, no, let us let us make sure this is absolutely as confusing as possible because that's the only way to sustain the mystery. You know, it's fantastic. It's wonderful stuff. Oh yeah, that was a seance at the home of Poe's literary executor Rufus Griswold and Poe had just recently died. Griswold was working on the complete works of Edgar Allan Poe, compiling all the different Poe poems and stories. And they had this seance at his house with the famous Fox sisters. And Horace Greeley is the one who brought them to town, the guy from the New York Tribune. So they had all the literati of New York City stopping by this seance. You had people who are forgotten today, like John Francis or Nathaniel Parker Willis, but you also had people that are still known today, like James Fenimore Cooper was one of the people. And because it was a bunch of writers there, there were newspaper accounts of it the next few days. So you got these firsthand accounts of people saying, yeah, we just sat in the dark and we asked questions and we had these random knocking noises. And some people seemed like they were just bored. Other people thought it was ridiculous. A few people were just true believers. But that's just how it is. That number of knocking I guess it depends on if you really wanted to believe it was 50 knocks, <laughs> right. you'd believe it's 50 knocks. Otherwise, you say, well, maybe it's 48, maybe it's 51. And the knocking at first was so rapid, they couldn't really count them all. And, the, and part of the deal is you have to be sitting in a dark room. The ghosts don't like to show up if not. you're not yeah, in darkness. No, right. I mean, why would you ever get a clear picture of, of something which may or may not exist, right? <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's marvelous. Now, your, your book, I have to say, Chris, is um, it is beautifully 
written. And I mean, you're writing about a, um, in some ways, a macabre topic, but not 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 completely. But you do so um, in a manner that befits your subject. And as I was sort of going chapter by chapter, I was really struck by the care that you took to describe, to set certain scenes and the sort of the shadowy light, which permeates these, you know, uh, halls of seance that, you know, you kind of capture that mood and atmosphere very well. And I was just wondering, this is spooky season and we do love, you know, a bit, a bit of gristle and gore. I was wondering if you would be so kind as to read for us. Uh, there's the opening of your eighth chapter, which is just a great example of how you set the scene for the discussion that is to follow, but you really put us in the mood first. I mean, I'm, I'm envisioning goblets of, uh, you know, dark red wine and, you know, candles dripping wax slowly and creaks in the floorboards. Marvelous. Would you just read those first couple paragraphs for us? Oh, sure. Philadelphia's immaculate street grid glistened under the cerulean sky. Long at the forefront of science, medicine, the arts, the Athens of America had nurtured Poe's creativity during the six years he lived there. And he still had plenty of friends in the area. But now everybody was gone. Those who could afford to leave had fled. And those with nowhere else to go were huddled indoors. A miasma had settled in the city, seeping through the shuttered windows and bolted doors. The cholera was back. Not quite a generation ago, it had ravaged the globe, sweeping away millions from India to Mexico. Its victims suffered fever, abdominal pain, and such incessant diarrhea that they poured out gallons of fluids into, until their skin turned bluish-gray, their fingers and toes shriveled, their faces sunk as if reverting to skeletal form, and their organs failed. The causes were unclear. Doctors speculated it could be divine justice for low living and heavy drinking. Broadsides urged citizens to avoid alcohol and drink more water. The cures, however, were plenty. The experts prescribed drinks containing ground deer antler, manure, turpentine, or mercury. But everyone knew the only real cure was to run as far away as possible. Marvelous. Thank you so much. I get chills just, just, just thinking of it. And let me ask you uh, um, before we turn to our final topic: do, do you did you have a, any kind of I don't know a personal literary ritual that you, that you sort of conducted to get yourself into that frame of mind to write this book? I mean, some folks, they light a candle, some folks that, you know, you never know. But did you have anything like that? No, the one thing I like to do is only write about things that interest me. If there's a chapter that I'm losing interest in, stop that chapter, work on a different chapter. So I often write my books out of order so I can always be interested in whatever I'm writing. I don't want to have to slug through a chapter if that one's boring me, or maybe I'll just eliminate that altogether if it's boring to me. I want to always be interested and always feel like I'm just writing the first chapter. So uh, I bounce around, and then afterwards, you have to put the whole thing back together and go back and edit it to make sure that there's continuity. But that's sort of my ritual, if there is one. And also, it's helpful to have a cat with you. 
Always, always. That goes without saying. That's the sine qua non. There's, there's no other way about it. You know, to, to trust your intuition as a matter of principle. Who knows? Maybe you've got another career as a, as a spiritualist, you know, ahead of you after, after your work at the museum. Well, then I could just let Poe write the books. Apparently, he kept writing poetry after he died. That's true. That's absolutely true. And that is a beautiful illustration of what exactly I want to ask you uh, now, which is your book is called Haunting Poe. And what I love about it is it is not just about the things that haunted Poe throughout his life, um, the uh, traumas, the diseases, the deaths, the the, the mesmeri- mesmerizings, you know, um, but it's also about the things that Poe haunted, right? <laughs> or that Poe is still said to haunt. And so the last half of your book is uh, about the places in the many different American cities uh, where Poe lived uh, that he is still said to appear or visit from time to time. And I wanted to ask you about one of them because it is uh, productive, I think, and it's useful. And maybe some of our listeners have even been there because it is such a landmark, and that is the Poe House in Baltimore. So, first of all, tell us tell us the significance of this particular property, and then tell us uh, about its curious uh, lifespan. It was nearly destroyed. I mean, it was nearly torn down. So, what's going on with the Poe House? Well, this is where Poe lived in his early twenties. It was. After he left Richmond, he'd been in the military, he dropped out of college, he'd been expelled from West Point, and he moved in with his biological father's sister. He he never knew his biological father. He ran out of the family early, but Mariah Poe Clem, his aunt, took him in, and she was living hand-to-mouth with her mother, Edgar's grandmother, who's getting a small pension from the government, and that small pension was enough to get all the poor Poes with nowhere else to go to flock to her house. You had Edgar, his brother Henry, his cousin Henry, Mariah, and Mariah's daughter Virginia all huddled together in a tiny house. And in quick succession, it looks like Poe's brother died about six months after he moved to Baltimore. Then his cousin Henry just sort of drops off the face of the earth, and we've got no record of when or where he ended up dying. So you got Mariah Clem and her daughter Virginia and their grandmother, and eventually the grandmother passed away. So it's a rough time, and Poe's published three books of poetry. He, by the time he was 22 years old, he published three books of poetry, and they didn't sell. They weren't making his mark in the, the world. But it was in that Baltimore house that he decided to turn to writing fiction. He said, the market for me is fiction. So he made that turn and ended up writing about 70 short stories, only about 45 poems, and said that half the poems he'd ever written would ever write were written by the time he was 22. So really, he focused on short stories, and that's how he made his name until, of course, The Raven came out a decade later. But while Poe is living there, he had some great lows. It's He entered a literary contest, submitted a bunch of his short stories. He lost the contest, but they still printed all the stories without paying him. He also had a spectacular high when he entered another literary contest and won for the story Manuscript Found in a Bottle. So lots of ups and downs, but this is really years when he was struggling. There's even stories that he might have gotten a job as a brick mason. I don't know if that's a fanciful tale just because of all the brick masons in, say, the Cask of Amontillado or the Black Cat, but it seems to tie together. 
So this was a time when this small family had to huddle together and Poe really formed a strong bond with his aunt and her daughter who became his mother-in-law and his wife. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. So the house itself was, um, eventually they all, you know, ended up in different properties in different cities and moved. And Virginia, as we know, you know, passed away very young, which was very painful for Poe. But um, later, the the property, it was nearly torn down, but for a kind of last minute effort to save it. Oh, yeah. They were going to tear down all the houses and build up a new housing development, but... Poe's admirers in Baltimore stuck it out. They did the research. They wanted to find out well, which of these houses was Poe because over the years, the addresses on houses change. The names of streets change. And they had to determine there are these two houses. There's a double house. Which of these two houses in the double houses, which one was Poe's? And they were able to figure out, well, this is the one. Let's save this one. So if you visit it today, it's it's just the half of the house that Poe lived in and the rest of it's all gone, replaced with modern buildings. But it was just Poe's admirers looking out for him. Which is a great story, and you know, I wish we had more more like that. Now, you write that that particular property has been uh, the site of some alleged hauntings or visitations. Um, I, ha- I have to say, Chris, uh, that you know, when you describe the uh, appearances of shadowy figures seated at writing desks, faces obscured by by you know the the smoky panes of glass. That's that's a pretty good example of your everyday living poet, and I say that as one. <laughs> so I'm not sure how we really distinguish between the dead and the alive in that particular instance. No offense, but I do have to ask you, there's this one interesting account by an actor who had some sort of experience in the upstairs room of the Poe house, and you, you tell this story in your book. Oh, yeah. They were having a performance in the house. It's not a very big house. So imagine this cramped little quarter, maybe one room deep with a windy staircase going up the back. So they had to go upstairs to get dressed and ready for the performance. And while she was upstairs, a piece of the window just came out, moved towards her and dropped on the ground. And she just said, no way I'm performing there. And just took off. And the curator there had to to make do without her. I mean, look, I I get it. I mean, she's a performing artist. She has maybe a slight vested interest in putting on a good show for all of us. But it's kind of interesting when she flees the scene and doesn't come back, right? I mean, that's not part of the show. Yeah, and it's not like the ghost tried to kill you. It just wanted to scare you a little bit. She could have come back. I guess she didn't have much of a sense of humor. 
Yeah, well, I mean, I guess if you have like shards of broken glass hanging in the air dangerously close to your neck. Yeah, if they were actually trying to kill you, but just trying to scare you a little bit. Yeah, well, that's true. I, I probably would have hung around for at least a few more minutes before boogieing on out of there, <laughs> right? Yeah, you could have just asked, well, what about my performance did you not like? Do you have any notes for me? And maybe the yeah, ghost exactly. would have just given yeah. her a few notes and said, oh, yeah, you need to touch up this part of it. My concern would be that the ghost would scribble those notes on the wall in my own blood, you know, using that same shard of glass. It would be a fitting kind of, uh, you know, form of feedback. But um, I understand her being not willing to not not willing to find out. Let me ask you about one more because it is fun. There's this great sequence that you have in your book, and it it is by far and away just one of the. It brings it all together. It brings the sort of, you know, the fragments of lost memory. It brings together the, you know, the the, the surly old grave digger. You know, it brings together the, uh, you know, the unactual corpse, right? And not just, you know, not just a random corpse, but Poe's corpse. And, and the, the moment of his re-exhumation and you know the the folks sort of coming in trying to relocate him um and and you know remove him to a new location and 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 so forth, the new cemetery. Uh, what I'm getting at is you have this amazing sequence where you describe grave robbers at Poe's own grave, okay? And they take chunks of the coffin, like the ones you have in the museum, and they 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 take those as souvenirs, and then they fashion the chunks of his wooden coffin that had lain mere inches from his mortal remains, you know, that sort of thing. Great, it's beautiful. And they make pens out of them, and pen holders, and they make writing instruments out of them. What on earth were they thinking? Well, that's just the way people were. I mean, they want all things Poe, but say if your loved one died in that era, you might save their hair and you might make hair art of it or might make a hair cross that you wear around your neck. So they had different ideas about what was kind of gross, but the scene <laughs> happened, it was 1875, so it was 26 years after Poe died, yeah. and... The idea was to move Poe's body. He was way in the back of the cemetery. Even people who go to the cemetery today often overlook where he used to be because it's all the way around the back of the church. And this group of Poe's admirers thought, no, he needs a monument for his grave. He doesn't have anything. Now he needs a monument. He needs to be in the front near the sidewalk. So now Poe's grave is right next to the sidewalk. You can see it from the street. So that meant they'd have to move him. And as they're moving him, the coffin fell apart. He fell out, gave everybody a good scare. And by that time, you know, is this bones? The newspaper said that it was mostly just bones, a little bit of skin, a little bit of hair left <laughs> clinging to the skull, the skin and the muscle had rotted away. His rib cage had fallen open. His mandible had fallen off. Oh, but he so had little good. teeth all around his skull. And the newspapers the next day, at least three different newspaper accounts said he had very nice teeth. So apparently he practiced good dental hygiene. So they scooped up all the Poe pieces afterwards, put them in a new Poe box, and people grabbed chunks of that old coffin off the ground. And some of those are just big chunks like the one at the Poe Museum. Others are little pieces, and some are made into pens. And there's a few of them out there. There's a guy who showed us his Poe pen, but he doesn't want to donate it just yet. I hope one day he'll s donate his Poe pen to us. And... There was a writer named George Hazelton who was a playwright and a novelist, and he wanted to write a novel about Poe's life called The Raven in 1909. It's the centennial of Poe's birth, perfect time to write a Poe book. And his friend who 
had a Poe pin, gave him the Poe pin and said, here, here's a piece of pin made from Poe's coffin. And George <laughs> Hazleton set up with his paper at his desk, a big stack of paper. He had his inkwell with black ink in it. He dipped his pen in the inkwell and wrote chapter one on the top of the first page. And we looked at it, instead of saying chapter one, it said, Aronel, E-R-O-N. E-L, Aronel. Well, obviously one of my kids got in here and they wrote this on the page. I'm going to start another page and then he just gets rid of that one. Then he writes the next one, chapter one instead. Same chapter one, it says, Aronel. And he had no idea what this meant. So then he says, I'm going to force my hand. I'm going to hold my hand down and I can only write chapter one. And he holds his hand in place. And instead of the black ink, it turns out blood red and spatters on him. He says, oh, (laughs) I need to stop using this pen. And he just gave up that part, used another pen. And he eventually finished the novel. It's called The Raven. And he he published this in a newspaper saying about his experience with the haunted pen. And he had people come to see the Aranel. And what does this mean, this Aranel? Is it some other language? And then somebody held up a mirror to it and it's, Lenore backwards. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> I love that ghost story. I'd love to get the pin, though. Wouldn't that be good to have the pin in the museum? That would be. So if you out there have the pin, send it down to Richmond to the Poe Museum. We'll put it on display. And your name, too, will be immortalized as the donor of the bloody pin. I love that story in your book. And there are so many stories like that in your book of folks, you know, transgressing between the, the the mortal realm and the shadow realm and, you know, just doing everything they can to get as close as possible to what lies beyond the veil. It's marvelous. It's marvelous. I just such a joy. Well, thanks. And in some cases, one of the stories, if you can't get Poe's corpse, get his wife's. That was one of the pieces in there, too. Okay, well, we will leave our readers to find that out for themselves. That is a delightfully spooky story, which is also in the book. And if you want to know how and where to go grave digging uh, (laughs) for Virginia Clem, um, then you know what to do, everybody. The book is called Haunting Poe. It's published by Arcadia and the History Press, and we have been so grateful to have Chris Semter with us here today. Now, I have to ask you one or two last questions. First of all, do you have any plans for Halloween? I mean, is there a traditional reading of the Raven on the grounds at midnight or something they're like? Well, it's always Halloween at the Poe Museum. <laughs> Touche. So just the usual, just terrifying more kids, and I think we even have a wedding schedule for that day. We have lots of perfectly normal people who get married at the Poe Museum, but you have to be a special kind of person to book out Halloween Day for your wedding. Yeah, absolutely. Truly auspicious indeed. We also have our Halloween-themed unhappy hour. We have an unhappy hour each month from April through October. It's kind of like a happy hour, except it's the Poe Museum, so it's really melancholy. It's a miserable time from six to nine. And we have our Halloween-themed one with costume contests and everything, and that's the most popular one of the year. I can only imagine that you serve on the menu two of the greatest drinks, cocktails ever invented, number one. I'm sure you serve a Bloody Mary, because how could you not? And then please tell me that you serve that delicious gin-based concoction called the Corpse Reviver. Please tell me those are on the, on offer. Well, you have to find out for yourself. We've 
have all sorts of local brews. There's the Black Cat Ale, and sometimes we serve Raven Beer. We even had one of the events we had an Amontillado tasting for our cask of Amontillado-themed evening. Well, in that case, put it on your calendar, folks. So, Chris, last question for you is where can folks find your work? I mean, if they want to get a hold of of this book or any of your previous works on Poe, what's the best place to find you? Probably you can find them all on Amazon and also at the Poe Museum's online store, poemuseum.org. Usually has a lot of the History Press titles like... Poe's Richmond is a story of Poe's life in the city, those pivotal moments that took place in Richmond. And also we have the Raven illustrations of James Carling, a whole book about this 19th century artist, died at the age of 29 while attempting to illustrate the Raven line by line. And this is the first gathering of all the illustrations in full color, thanks to History Press. And of course, the Poe Shrine, which is distributed by History Press in Arcadia, which is all about how the Poe Museum got its artifacts. And we profiled 25 of the most interesting artifacts like Poe's childhood bed or Poe's socks or Poe's walking stick and the key found in his pocket after his death, all sorts of good things that tell the story of who he was. And of course, the most recent one is Haunting Poe, his afterlife in Richmond and beyond. So you can track down those things at the Poe Museum website, or even on my website, chrissimpner.com. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Will you do us the greatest honor and take us out with a good, old-fashioned nevermore? Nevermore. (laughs) Perfect. Thank you, Chris. You're welcome. You want a telltale heart? Oh, go on. True. Nervous. Very dreadfully, dreadfully nervous. I have an NM, but why will you say that I am mad? The disease has sharpened my senses, not destroyed, not dulled. Above all things was a sense of hearing acute. I heard all things in the heavens and the earth. I heard many things in hell. How then am I mad? Hearken, see how calmly, how healthily I can tell you the whole story. And cut. There is no way that we can follow such a bravura performance, so we are not even going to try. Thank you for listening. As always, our guest has been Chris Semter, curator of the Edgar Allan Poe Museum in Richmond, Virginia, and author of Haunting Poe, published by the History Press. To order a copy, visit your local independent bookstore or visit arcadiapublishing.com. Join us next week as our extended spooky series continues with a trip down a haunted highway. We're pulling out all the ghoulish stops to kick off our third season of the show. See you then. Thanks as always to our producer, Bill Huffman, our production director, Bridget Coyne, audio engineer, Ian Douglas, and our executive producers, Michael DeLoya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts and a signature title of the Killer Podcasts Network. You can find Crime Capsule wherever you listen to podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at killerpodcasts.com. One of Scotland's most notorious unsolved murders. 
To think that someone could turn a cheese wire into a garrote and take someone's life. The level of violence, the uncertainty and the randomness frightened people. She always thought the killer was going to come back after her. Society needs to find that killer. Who is the cheese wire killer? Listen to the full series now, wherever you get your podcasts.